<laughs> okay, so hey listeners, we are doing a uh, pandemic episode uh, because the world is crashing. Uh, I am your co-host, uh, Dr. Liz Wayne from the PhD Podcast, and today we are going to talk about coronavirus and maybe even viruses in general and just figure out a little bit of background information to understand what's happening. And I have a special guest with me today, Dr. Kashana Taylor. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Great. And is going by Kashana okay today or do you want to? Nope, that's totally fine. All right, Dr. Taylor, you know, I got a master Taylor, she's a master of science. So Dr. Taylor Kashana is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California at Davis. Um, and she does work in the microbiology and molecular genetics department, focusing on the rate of reassortment between viruses such as influenza during co-infection. So I wanted to make sure I gave the introduction because the reality is that's really all I know about infections and viruses besides, you know, hating it. <laughs> and actually, yeah, like, I yeah, so... We, I wanted to bring Kashana on the podcast just to talk about kind of what's going on in terms of communication about viruses and maybe even talking about some misconceptions or what would help people understand why this is a big deal. So maybe the first question, which is like the most dramatic, like, is this really a big deal? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> it is a big deal. Um, and it's, it's partially, it's a big deal for a number of different reasons, right? So um, this SARS coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2, which is what uh, is kind of going around right now and what has just been declared a pandemic, is a new virus. So it's not something we've seen before. Um, and that's why it is a big deal, because we don't have anything to gauge on, right? So like when we think about something we hear about every year, like the common cold or even influenza virus, for example, we have numbers from years and years and years of different outbreak situations that we can kind of make guesses or um, best estimations of what's going to happen or what things might look like but because I mean because we um have not seen this virus before we're still kind of stabbing in the dark at a lot of things um and then on top of that like I mean we have the original SARS virus which is not it's not the same but it's a similar within the group of coronaviruses so we can kind of maybe make some like general estimations off of that but really they're behaving a little bit differently so we really don't know Okay, so you're telling me that because we don't have a precedent for this, we're giving all the precaution possible, right? Yes. Okay. Um, so, so we don't know what's going to happen. So we're being precautious because. So what are we worried about? That's going to happen. How long it's going to last? How severe it's going to be? Right. So right, we don't know. We don't. We can't guess the future, but we can look um, back to the cases that we have seen since. November, December. Um, and so what we have seen so far is that the virus is disproportionately um, lethal in older adults and the immunocompromised. Um, and so we are taking an abundance of precaution because while it is thought that a, a lot of the folks who might get infected will be okay, you can still potentially pass this virus onto those who are vulnerable. And we're trying to, um, one, keep those people from getting very sick, but also if everyone gets sick at the same time, it has the potential to overwhelm the um, health resources that we have in this country, and that could result in deaths, even not necessarily from the from coronavirus infection itself, but from other things. Because if um, hospitals are overwhelmed, they don't really have the resources to really tend to anything, let alone 
um, specific coronavirus cases. Right. Okay. All right. That's great. So another question I had, um, and maybe the question slash confusion. So I think I discovered coronavirus like in March, but what you're saying, we've kind of been following this since November. So can you kind of tell me how do people, how does this whole virus naming and tracking thing work? Because it seems like there's a system and I had no idea. Yeah, so the system actually kind of varies depending on the virus. And so I'm not super familiar with how they name coronaviruses. Historically, a lot of viruses have been named for where they have been isolated, but we have moved away from that because it can um, create a stigma for the places where the viruses have been found or like kind of mm-hmm. right, like people have been trying to call it the Chinese coronavirus or- Hashtag racism, yes. Yeah, okay. and, it, and it's, it's racism. So we're trying to not perpetuate that. Um, so the SARS coronavirus 2 um, or SARS-CoV-2 here is being named because it causes severe acute respiratory syndrome. So that's what SARS stands for. Um, and then CoV is coronavirus. And this is the second SARS causing virus. So it's SARS-CoV-2. Oh, okay. And how do we identify a virus? So like, do we just have a patient or someone comes up, they have a virus and you just log every virus and then wait until it shows up again in, in another patient? Is that how it works? Um, yes and no. So um, like with, so basically someone will come in sick and let's say they have um, X symptoms. So I have a fever, I have a cough um, and I feel really tired. And so right, you'll go through the process of elimination of figuring out what it is. And so a lot of the times when you think it's upper respiratory, they will take a swab, like a Q-tip Mm-hmm. and like swab your nose or swab your throat to kind of see um, what they can what they can get from that. And so you can then put those swabs into either <clears throat> PCR if it's a known virus or um, like culture. So um, a bunch of cells like in a petri dish or a flask and you um, look for whether or not you can get viral growth in that. And, mm-hmm. and then from there, there's a bunch of different methods that you can use, but... Um, you can use like electron microscopy, which is basically taking like right a microscopic picture of the structure of a virus once you have it mm-hmm. isolated. Um, you can use antibodies to known viruses that you have and see if there's any cross reactivity. So then you at least know like what group of viruses it's in. So it can be a very, I guess, um, complicated and in-depth process for sure. Um, but usually once we know what it is or once we have an idea what it is, so there are PCR, something called... Um, polymerase chain reaction or, or PCR test. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they detect the genetic material of microorganisms. So um, in our case here, coronavirus is an RNA virus. And so we can run a, a reverse transcription uh, mm-hmm. PCR, which converts RNA into DNA. And then we use that to then like um, look at what we have. We can... Um, determine what it is through a PCR test. And that's, that's what the, all the health public health agencies are, are using now is like a PCR test. And so if they right. if they can amplify the genetic material of the SARS coronavirus, the RNA, then the assumption is that you are replicating virus and you have an infection. Right. And I think th- this is um this is interesting because um, the technique that Kashana just described is a quantitative, like the QPCR, mm-hmm. quantitative PCR polymerase, has a, a bunch of different ways to call that actually, um, is a pretty basic, pretty standard molecular biology technique. Yeah. Uh, 
So, which is that in this virus conversation, it's about the only thing I and I understand because I've actually done it in my lab and I do, and my students are also doing, well, they will learn how to do this type of experiment. And so um, it's really interesting to think about this question of testing, which I guess we can talk about because the current, the current kind of um, dilemma that I, I see people coming around is like, well, how do we test? Who should be tested? Are we under testing? Um, and what is like the barriers to being to being able to test everybody? Right, right. Yeah. So with the test, the, it. I'm trying to say that. Okay. <clears throat> so with the testing, right? The in order to kind of cater to the people who most need testing, they usually will define the case definition. So in the case of um, SARS-CoV-2, they basically said anybody who's presenting with fever, cough, um, like tightness of chest, so like indications of pneumonia, that have traveled to China um, within 14 days. That was like the original, and I'm pretty sure that's still the most standard case definition. And so the idea was that by narrowing it down to these people, you could potentially right, find these people, put them into isolation, and then you can stop the virus from spreading. Uh, so what has become a bigger issue now is that there is local spread. So this was, so you make that case definition assuming you're only gonna get people who traveled to China where the virus was originally isolated. Um, they're gonna get sick and we're gonna catch them. So we don't have to really worry about anybody else within the community. The problem is that once the virus starts to spread within the community, i.e. Um, to people who, have not traveled to China or kind of just live in their everyday lives in their local situation, we're then not able to test those people because they don't fit the case definition. So theoretically, you would then alter the case definition to be anybody who presents with these symptoms, um, maybe some other differential diagnosis criteria. Um, and that's kind of where we're getting to now, but it's just been um, like coming out of the CDC or coming out of the, the um, you know, government administration, it's just been kind of delayed. And so we haven't been able to test everyone who theoretically should be getting tested. So right now, yes, it's okay. It's a local infection now. Mm -hmm. And now the definition of who should be tested has been, ex should be expanded now. Mm -hmm. um, and the question is making sure we have enough test kits for everyone to get tested. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, that was the other issue was that, um, Originally, the test kits had like some faulty reagents. Um, and so, right, so when you run PCR or quantitative PCR, you always have like a positive control um, and you have to have primers um, and that kind of stuff. And so um, some of the issues that have popped up with the test have been um, the primers were not working properly um, or um, like there was an issue with the negative controls. And so there have been some basic, you know, PCR troubleshooting missteps that have kind of slowed the delay of the release of the test. Um, and then now they're, they're, you know, predicting that, um, people are going to run out of the reagents to extract the RNA from clinical samples. So that might yeah. be something else that kind of slows down the testing as well. It makes sense. So I do PCR in my lab and it's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is very expensive. Um, and it's like such a great tool because you get so much data from it, yeah. but then you can quickly run out of the reagents. They're, yeah, they're quite pricey. And I feel like, a, so usually the um, the research reagents we use are from Kyogen. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I believe that the government is also using those reagents. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's, I can only imagine like how much of an overflow this is causing. And, uh, maybe this is also a good time to talk about experiments. Like as a scientist, how do we do experiments? So you mentioned, okay, so we want to test the patient and we want to know if they're positive for something. Mm -hmm. So to order to do that, we want to test a sample from the patient, mm -hmm. but we also want to make sure that our, that we, when we get an answer, it's the right answer. Mm -hmm. So you would have a negative control. So a sample that should show up negative mm -hmm. so that, you know, that you're not getting a false positive, but you also want to make sure the reagent is working at all. Mm -hmm. So you have a positive control. Yep. We just think that should always work. Yep. And I think in clinical trials, those having those positive and negative controls are always important. And probably also having a normalizing, um, something that normalizes, like I'm thinking about 18S. Mm -hmm. um, so something that just like can normalize for the fact that different patients may have different amounts of protein in their body. So you want to normalize that load. Um, but those are the reagents. Those are the, pr the protocols. And the primers can be hard to mess up. I'm surprised they messed this up given that they should already have had a sequence. And the primers are the cheapest part about this whole experiment. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really <laughs> how the primers got so... Um messed up i'm i'm just the primers cost like dollar like it's cents to dollars here i mean I, and I think part of the part of the issue i guess you could say is that we decided as a country that we were going to make our own tests as opposed to using tests that were already mm. in, in some other countries um so they had basically already worked out those kinks right so if we had just been like okay just give us give us the sequences and i'm, I'm sure they were offered but you know we want the sequences the primer sequences that you're using, we know those already work. We might have been able to avoid this. Right. Yeah. So when I, in my lab, when I order a primer, I can go on a website, I can send them the sequence and then, um, and I can get that back like the next day. Like it's, so this is actually quite an easy process, um, which is why it's interesting that this part, the part that's being messed up. Okay. So we have the tests, maybe we're getting back on track and there are some policy issues. Um, help me understand a little bit more about viruses themselves. So even if it wasn't coronavirus, um, I um, and I also wanna preface and say that I'm having this conversation for people who might have a little more interest in the science of what's happening and sort of how that influences how people make decisions. And I also wanna recognize that just because you are a science or like you are, advance in some way does not mean that you actually understand someone else's field. So if you were to ask me about macrophages or nanoparticles or drug delivery, like I am on it. I read the literature daily. <laughs> I teach about it. I know about it. I do not know about virology. Um, and so I end up really kind of being debased back to the lay population in terms of like, do I really believe it's a big deal? Why are they doing this? How extreme is it? Or like, am I really going to get infected? Right. And so, and I think that one, that's a problem. And I'm hoping that you can just help me understand and help our listeners understand. Um, the Can you help us understand why the measures that people are taking to reduce uh, infection spread important and, and why are they being used? Yeah. So, um, I mean, viruses as a group, uh, like a general group are very diverse, right? So 
you have some viruses that are spread via respiratory droplets, so like um, mucus or spit, that kind of thing, or some that are like aerosol, so they're in the air. You have some that are um, transmitted via like mosquito bite or tick bite, and then you have others that are more like sexually transmitted. So there are just there are multiple ways that you um, can contract different viruses, and so. Um, when we think about the social distancing measures, so like washing your hands um, and staying away from sick people and kind of, you know, shutting down large events and those sorts of things, these are really um, effective for respiratory, upper respiratory infections. And so if it was like a um, West Nile virus outbreak, um, which is transmitted by mosquitoes, you wouldn't necessarily display the same measures, you'd more likely be spraying for like, you'd be spraying pesticides for mosquitoes and that sort of thing, because it doesn't matter whether or not you're in the same room, what it does, but it's more so based off of whether or not the mosquito is there to bite you versus like you breathing on someone, right? And so that's why these measures in particular are really helpful for upper respiratory infections, um, specifically for SARS-CoV, the, the droplets, so, um, the secretions that come out of people who are infected are very heavy. And so they don't travel very far versus like, so like if you think of a sneeze, right. Um, and there are pictures all over the internet, you can kind of, yeah. it'll show you like the projection of like where all of your spit and stuff is going after you sneeze. Um, and so if the respiratory droplets are really small um, and like light, they can travel much further versus mm -hmm. if they're really heavy, they're kind of just going to like drop to the floor. And mm -hmm. so staying six feet, six feet apart is enough of a barrier to keep you from getting whatever someone else has if they're coughing or sneezing or whatever. Okay. So this, the distance is, is directly related to the amount, to the space in which um, respiratory droplets could travel. Yes. So that even if someone sneezed, even if, I don't know, they just breathe too hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> talking too much, spit coming out when they talk, six feet is enough that that wouldn't even reach you. Right. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, so there, but there, so that's, that's, so that's why they say like six feet apart or potentially just like secluding yourself off in an area where you don't really have contact with the people. The other thing though, right, is that um, upper respiratory infections, um, people in general have a tendency to touch their face. And if you don't believe this, just time yourself for like two minutes and try not to touch your face and see how often you actually touch your face. Um, and so um, you touch your nose, you touch your mouth, that, that's where you um, are secreting virus. And so then it gets on your hands. And then, right, you touch the door, you touch the phone, you touch the, computer, mm. um, you touch the counter, et cetera. Um, you're then leaving virus on those surfaces. Um, and I'm, I'm not completely positive how long SARS-CoV-2 lasts on surfaces, but I know it's at least a couple of hours. And so if I touch the, if I have SARS-CoV-2, um, I sneeze on my hand or I cough um, into my hand and then I touch the doorknob, you know, anybody who touches that doorknob within the next couple of hours potentially picks up the virus. And then if they touch their face without washing their hands, boom, you have another infection. Got it. Yeah. Got it. I've heard some estimates that, um, so in plastic, it can actually be up to days. Oh, wow. Okay. And then in, and the metal, it's like it's in hours. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, glass has different. So that's also interesting that viruses don't stick to the same, to surfaces that are different in the, in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that days thing can be really freaky because you think like 
let's say someone was around and they were sick, but they've been gone for a couple hours. No, it still doesn't matter. Right. Um, and so people have been trying to extrapolate how bad it's going to get. Mm-hmm. And so I hear this thing about models all the time. But it's hard to understand when you don't know what models are talking about, nor do you have a sense of exponential spread. Right. So, I mean, models take certain parameters. So um, they kind of talked about this a lot when the virus, when we first started following the virus, they have like the R0, um, which is also kind of just how many people can an infected person infect. And so theoretically, like in the perfect environment, um, I believe the R0 is like three or four. Um, so R not oh R zero like R okay yeah no 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 I I know what you mean now okay Mm -hmm. um and so you can take parameters like the R not so how many people in an ideal situation um can one person infect and then you have like right how many how how many people are is an infected person likely to come into contact with um you can throw in other things like um what the environment is like so at least for flu viruses anyway um, they spread better when there's low humidity. Huh. Yeah. Um, and so, like, right? So, like, theoretically, you could put that in a model. So, in a in a more humid versus a low humid situation, how likely is it that the virus is going to spread? Um, so, theoretically, rain would be a good good thing for preventing the spread of flu? Um, I, I guess, depending on, <laughs> I guess, how much humidity it adds to the environment. Yeah. So, I think... Um, the, the paper that I'm thinking of said that anything above like 60% relative humidity is, is better for preventing the spread of respiratory virus, specifically the flu. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, humidifiers are great. <laughs> yeah, there, there's so much. I have, um, I actually have three more questions for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really should have written these I should have written these down. So the first one is just to address, if you could address like why we should care more about COVID uh, this one than flu. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that, that, that criticism comes up quite a bit that the mortality rate or the severity of the disease cases is similar. So why are we, but we don't have the same response right. to this. Well, so, okay. so think of it this way, right? So at least, Granted, not everyone gets their flu vaccination, but there is actually a flu vaccine that you can take that will help you to, um, it'll help, it'll either help you prevent infection in the future or lessens the severity of your infection should you, um, so should it not be as accurate of a match. We don't have for SARS-CoV-2 for COVID-19. It, it doesn't exist. And so there's no way to kind of mitigate it that way. Um, there's no way to, other than to get infected, to develop herd immunity, which is when enough people in the population are infected that the virus does not spread effectively. Um, also, it's from what we know now, and this number is obviously going, obviously is going to change and does change during an active outbreak, but from what we know now, actually, the um, SARS-CoV-2 is more lethal than influenza, seasonal influenza. Pandemic influenza is different. Um, but it, mm-hmm. it is more lethal than seasonal influenza. Um, and yeah, it's um, even even if you don't die from SARS-CoV-2, it, it's, it's shown that there's just like a different burden of disease. So um, more people with like pneumonia and stuff that have to seek hospitalization versus when you have the flu, you feel really crappy, but 
unless there's some type of underlying thing you're usually okay. Hmm. Okay. So it is a worse disease and we do not have a vaccine against it. Um, and I think this is interesting because my guess is that even after all these precautions, people will still feel like we over um, overreacted when the reality is the overreaction is what allows us, allows nothing to happen, right. right? So doing something is actually why nothing happens, but what will seem as if nothing that we did mattered. Right. It's kind of catch-22, right? You do all of these things to prevent this catastrophic event from happening, and then people are like, oh, whatever, you overreacted. And then if you don't do it, then it's like, but you didn't do anything, and now all of these people are really sick, or all of these people are dying, and so kind of have to... Well, we should have done it two weeks before, and like, we just don't know. And Right. And so as, a, as someone who... Um, I guess interested in the health of the public or in public health, you kind of just have to accept the fact that people are going to say that you overreacted, but ultimately you know that you saved lives, so it's worth it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that leads into the next question I have for you, which is this idea of public trust. Because I think built into people's um, concerns about our responses and, and about the plans is is not knowing who to trust. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I'm wondering, like, as someone who is interested in public health, someone who actually studies this, um, how do you find that com this conversation goes? Or the challenges of, like, I, trust among community and, like, experts? Right. So as a, as a Black woman, as someone, as a, as a member of the Black community, we are prone to um, conspiracy theories. <laughs> and I get it. It makes sense because you have things like, you know, Henrietta Lacks and using her cells and her mm -hmm. or like the Tuskegee experiments where they just gave a bunch of folks syphilis and didn't treat them. Like, I get it. However, now it's kind of reached this, especially in the age of um, the current political situation um, mm. where, you know, someone will say something and then someone will be like, no, that's not true and like fact checking and all that stuff. It's kind of hard to believe and I, I feel like conspiracy theories or conspiracy theorists have taken hold of a lot more people than they would have um, mm -hmm. at, at any other at any other different time um, especially through social media and the dog whistling it's like they're talking to us they're talking to everybody but they're saying in a way that only a few a certain population of people are going to really like you know mm -hmm. feel, feel the fear of the other message that they're saying right and and um especially social media which it drives me nuts is, is like especially on like instagram and facebook there are these memes and so they'll be like these are the five things that you shouldn't eat but there'll be like no um like scientific evidence or articles with it but it's just like a list and so people mm -hmm. will be like oh my god i didn't know i could eat bananas but it's like but there's no evidence that you shouldn't eat bananas. yeah eat the bananas b-a-n-a-n-a-s what Gwen told us to do. Right. And it's just like, and I, I have these conversations with my mom all the time. Um, she'll go on Instagram and be like, well, they said X, Y, Z. And I'm like, but who is they? Who are, what, what credentials do they have that you're listening to them? Like, or did you just see a nice picture with some words on it? Like, And then when did Instagram become the station? Like, right. <laughs> like, we have to have some critical thought here. We can't just, uh, we can't just go and do stuff because that's what we see and and I mean we, I've had other issues in that like she'll, she'll be the one to like they'll be like oh it's an emergency can you put your credit card number in this thing so that we can send this and she'll do it and then she'll be like I don't understand what just happened 
Um, and so there's like that kind of literacy, I think, where like it's interesting that you'll like you can trust like a random pop up you see on the internet, and, like you have your daughter who's a virologist saying X, Y, and Z, and you're like, nah, I don't believe you. So- <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> like I'm struggling with these things, and and the other thing is, in addition to this, I'm trying to contextualize myself. I live in two different worlds, so mm-hmm. one world is just like academic highly like intellectual let's discuss things and I also have the privilege of having a a group of friends and colleagues who are knowledgeable so I'm not a virologist but I actually know a virologist in real life and so I can go get information from you and I forget that that's not the truth for everybody and so when I think about my mom and she's in rural Mississippi and thinking about how she gets information Mm -hmm. and it's a completely different story and so that you know, my mom doesn't, they decide not to do cable anymore. They use the fire stick. And so what that means is that, sure, it's on CNN, but it's not coming to them. Right. <laughs> They're getting that CNN information. They're not even getting Fox information. Yeah. Um, like, so it doesn't matter political, uh, this um, political, like, um, preferences, is what I'm trying to say. So then how do they get the information? How do they, how do they sift through what's real and what's not real? And they're on Facebook, they're on, they're on Instagram, and you know, even some younger kids, like they're on Snapchat. And I can't, I mean, I've had, I've tried to have a conversation with someone on Snapchat before. It is, is rough. <laughs> I, yeah, I agree. It is basically like the, this whole, the whole thing is um, something that I've been asking myself a lot as someone who, you know, wants to give back to my community and, and to help science literacy in the black community. I ask myself all the time, like. Well, why are these people going to trust you? Or how do I how do I build that trust so that they'll actually listen to me? And then like, how do I mitigate the other ways in which these people are getting information, whether true or faulty, right? Like, how do I um, communicate that to the people in my community? Um, and if I'm mm-hmm. honest, I don't know that I have an answer yet. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's hard. And then how do we, what are the consequences of not getting that out to these communities? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just the black community, but also thinking about um, other ethnicities. Yep. What about people who don't speak English as a first language? Mm-hmm. Um, also, what about low income, right? What about people, I frequently forget the internet is not accessible to everyone. Yes. And because it's just at my fingertips right now, I can go wherever I want and some people don't have that. And, um, and, and how to make that work. And then back to your point about like th- being introspective about how to be helpful for your community. I struggle with this because sometimes I feel like I'm out of touch mm-hmm. because, because of the space that I inhabit now. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I recently um, moved back home. So I've kind of, been, pra- been in, in practice more with kind of like my code switching and uh, being able to communicate with my family because before it was like, you know, a phone conversation when you're there and now I'll see them, you know, once or twice a week. Um, and it's definitely been uh, a reality check. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially because when you're in academia, sometimes you're the only Black person. And so you end up, you end up, you represent Blackness. Mm-hmm. And then it can be, jarring to go back to this other space where like you can relax but you also like like oh i'm behind yeah <laughs> yeah thing? and i'm very much um considered the nerd and the mm-hmm. i guess assimilated in my family so sometimes right. you get at me like 
is that real or is that just what you know them folks over there is doing and you just do what they do so right oh man okay all right <laughs> yeah so it's it's interesting and i i think that um this is a really important moment for science communicators who so people who do this job professionally but it's also important for um scientists at all stages whether they're an undergrad or grad school postdoc faculty who or staff to lean into their expertise yes and like the way that we're going to get information isn't just going to be by hoping someone's watching cnn but also having people in the family who are scientists or who are trained reaching out to their communities and telling them like if you have any questions ask me if you're confused about something, ask me and then figure out how to actually explain things in a way and build that trust. Yeah. I mean, um, I know I have, I hate going on Facebook. Um, so I have <laughs> been on Facebook recently a lot to kind of spread the message there. And so um, I've been doing things like I'm in a couple of um, like private moms groups. And so I've like mm-hmm. been like, hi, like I'm, I'm a virologist and I know people are, you know, they have questions and stuff. So anyone you know has questions that I'll be more than welcome you're more than welcome to ask them of you and I will do my best to answer um I've been making like personal posts that I know like my mom and family and stuff will see and Mm -hmm. them like sharing them and I've kind of been doing my best to like keep everything very basic and like very short right not these like long detailed descriptions that we're kind of used to in academia uh, yeah for sure and um kind of doing my part but I remember in the beginning like when the outbreak first happened I was kind of um what's the word that i'm looking for i i was kind of reserved in whether or not i was going to say anything because i felt like right i'm not okay i'm i'm not a coronavirologist i research influenza um, and my heart really lies with vector-borne viruses right so which is what coronavirus is neither of those and so i'm like it's not really my lane i don't want to say anything and like get anything wrong not realizing that, like, the general message that we want to give to the public is not the same as a scientific discussion about the different right. of, of a coronavirus. And so, um, I think... Because you're over, like, vector versus not. I'm like, mRNA, you're like, it's just an mRNA virus. And, you know, I'm a PhD-trained scientist, and I still, like, am looking at you like, <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> sure. This one's mRNA. That one's DNA, I guess. Sure. <laughs> that oh you're like oh i only care about vector viruses like okay <laughs> i mean that's kind of obnoxious that's pretentious to only care about one kind of virus right no i'm just really fields for specific viruses that's what, so like- no no i i totally understand exactly what you mean and it um and i think that people do have this reservation but that also goes it goes back to um in general, like science and the academy telling us that we don't have knowledge that's worth sharing or that we have to reach a certain stage before we are worthy of sharing information that we know. Yep. Like who gets to be called an expert and who doesn't? Yep. And as far as viruses are concerned, you got a PhD. I'm pretty sure you took numerous courses in virology. You had to pass a qualitative qualifier exam. You, you know what you're talking about enough to have this conversation. Right. And that's what I had to realize. And so that's kind of what I've been doing over the last couple of days when things have started to get, you know, a bit more intense with the social distancing and everything shutting down and those kind of things, for sure. 
Yeah. And building that trust is so important. So I think one of the things that I'm going to do not because I, I am not a virologist expert and I can't lend that kind of credibility. But what I what I can do in terms of credibility is actually try to help people trust the voices that should be trusted. Mm-hmm. Like um, C-SPAN or talking to the um, every state has like an emergency management agency and they're are people who work in infections in states. Mm -hmm. Those are people who, this is their job. And it's about making sure that those are the platforms that you're listening to. Yes, very much so. Because we don't have a lot of faith in governmental agencies. And I think that what we can do, not only spread information, but to tell people that they should trust these sources of people who are trying to help us. Yeah, so yeah, definitely in this case, I would say... The CDC is a great place to listen to. Um, Like you were saying, the emergency preparedness units and um, local public health agencies are all um, wonderful resources to go to. Um, I mean, CNN, MSNBC, all those stuff, like they'll kind of do the general overlay, but sometimes they get stuff wrong. So it's, it's good to know some other agencies to listen to for sure. Also, they'll just show us graphs that grow over time. Like, you're just a height, you know, like, look at this graph. Yeah. Oh, man. Look look at that. Yeah. I definitely- this is what happens if that happens. And this is what happens if this happens. And Donald Trump and puppies. And this is what happens when this happens. So, yeah, yeah it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. And I, I think this all comes down to trust and then. I need some other issues like capitalism and, you know, like why is it so hard for us to actually shut down? Yep. Why or, the stock market is being prioritized over other things. and Right. Such, yeah. Or maybe workers should, workers' lives should not be so precarious that they could not have sustained yep. this type of shutdown. Right. And is it really in consumer, is it really a consumer's responsibility? It's like it's almost like other people are being blamed for other people not being able to work, mm-hmm. and um, that's a lot of pressure for people to have because you have to make these decisions of um, not protecting the community just to help the community. What? <laughs> what? It's the community versus the community for sure. Just different. right, and when like maybe maybe if people weren't living paycheck to paycheck yeah mm-hmm. but i digress mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I dig- no, that also not on my also not on my uh my cv <laughs> or my bio sketch um so i had one more question for you uh-huh. and that was just going to be maybe a little bit more about yourself so we kind of went right into coronavirus but like who is Dr. Kishana Taylor, why did you become interested in studying viruses? Okay, so this is going to be, so I actually had a very roundabout way (laughs) to virology. So when I was younger, I wanted to be a dolphin trainer. Um, A what? A dolphin trainer. Okay. Um, I'm, I was always really into animals. Okay. I love the water. I love the ocean. And I was like, okay, dolphins are great. They live in the ocean. I can live on the ocean. (laughs) I'm going to go be, (laughs) I'm going to go be, a marine biologist or a dolphin trainer. So I actually went to school originally for marine biology. Um, wow. And once I got to school, realized that marine biology is actually mostly like chemistry um, <laughs> and some other stuff that I had. I, I'm terrible at chemistry. Like I, if, if 
if I hadn't been able to take like a remedial chemistry class to graduate college, I would not have graduated. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, okay, well that's out. Um, <laughs> and so then I was like, okay, well I could be a marine mammal veterinarian. That'd be really cool. Still work with animals and I get to be a doctor, you know, which in most minority communities is like the thing, right? You want like, we know you can be a doctor. We want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah. So you can do math and science. You're going to be a doctor. Right. Right. <laughs> and so yeah, if you're going to be, that's what you're going to be. <laughs> and so what I didn't know at the time was that um, getting into veterinary school is harder than getting into medical school. There are not yeah. as many There's schools or yeah. spots like for, for people to go. And so mm-hmm. um, as a, as an animal science pre-veterinary major, they encourage you to basically write to diversify your CV or your bio sketch so that, you look appealing to vet schools. Mm-hmm. And I had a, um, my, my academic advisor did poultry virus research. And so I was saying, you know, like I want to best for my diversify my CV. And he was like, well, why don't you come work for me? Um, and so I actually got into really, really, really applied virology. So like taking avian viruses, um, so avian influenza or some other things called Newcastle, Newcastle virus. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and seeing, um, how we could disinfect them in in a situation where there's like an outbreak on a poultry farm. And so I was doing things like taking these like metal, we call them coupons, but they're like little metal squares and we would stick them to different parts of like a tractor and then, okay. um, put like virus on them and then spray disinfectants to see if our disinfection methods would actually get to like, you know, up underneath the wheel of the tractor. Um, hmm. And so like super applied, but uh, also got me into the lab because we'd have to see, right, if virus still grows after we spray mm-hmm. disinfected, that kind of thing. And I kind of fell in love with it. It was like really cool. Like I was doing this like lab work and I felt, you know, like a scientist and um, you- it had real implications in life, right? So, you know, poultry, mm-hmm. poultry avian, avian influenza outbreaks are like big and scary and they cause lots of damage to the poultry industry because you have to kill all the chickens and all the other kind of stuff. And I was like, hmm. I think I really, I think I really like this. Um, and so kind of switched years into being a virologist or being interested in virology, but also in like epidemiology um, and like disease outbreaks. And so that kind of set me on the path that I'm in today. And so I've kind of dabbled also in like microbiology. So I've done some work with antibiotic resistant E. coli, but um, I guess, you know, what I worked with first kind of stuck and I like viruses more than I like bacteria. And so I've, kind of went back to that for my PhD and that's what I'm doing now. That is such an amazing origin story. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. No, I love it. You want to be, you want to work with dolphins and then chemistry happened and you want to go to vet school and then vet school happened. (laughs) happened. Like, you know what? On second thought. So I, whenever I talk to um, like younger students, I'm always like, it's okay to change your mind. I changed my mind like five times. That's kind of what, you know, college and internships and all those things are supposed to be about. Um, and, you know, even now, like, even as a virologist, like there are still so many different options. And I, and I don't know that I, I mean, I know that I, again, like, um, I'm more interested in viruses that are spread by insects. Um, but there are still so many options within that, even that in particular subject. Oh, is that what a vector virus is? Yes, that's what a vector-borne virus is. (laughs) (laughs) So you could have said that. (laughs) You're like, I'm more interested in vector viruses personally. I'm like, okay. I'm like, math, my math brain is like, is there like an error over it? 
like the yeah, I don't do math like that. Like <laughs> I do. I did physics in undergrad. I did math like that. I know that you want to be a faculty member one day, and so I'm super hopeful for you. Um, and but hopefully, there nothing like this will come up again in, in the near future that would really test your knowledge again. Mm, I have um, some bad news about that. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, Tell me. I. Based on how we're doing with um, environmental <clears throat> health um, and, you know, basically destroying everything to build more buildings and such, I have a, I mean, the scientific evidence shows that this kind of stuff is going to keep happening. So, Whoa. So basically, global warming mm-hmm. and tearing down creating more structures that essentially like are just posts for viruses to land on rather than to be degraded or somehow something else that might happen if it were just trees it's going to make these viruses become more prevalent it's kind of more like um so a lot of the emerging viruses now have animal origins because we keep you know decreasing forests and their homes and so they're having more interactions with humans than they would have, hmm. say like a hundred years ago um and so yes i mean it's it's one basically disrupting environments to where like things that would would have stayed in the forest would have stayed in the forest are now coming into our cities because we're building our cities in the forest um and then yes also like warming temperatures um which is changing movements of animals and changing how we interact with a lot of these organisms will um or have been kind of behind the uptick in emerging diseases. Sure. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that means we're going to have to have you on again to talk about this. Um, uh, absolutely. I'm for it. Yeah. And you know what? I will admit that hopefully some of our like hygiene practices stay in place afterwards. Like I've been really, I've found it very comical that people are like listing songs you could sing while washing your hands, mm-hmm. but also like who hasn't been washing their hands? Yes, it's a valid, it's a valid, it's a valid question. But um, I've seen so many people on like Twitter and other places being like, the men's room actually finally has a backlog because yeah. washing their hands for twenty seconds, and it's just like, wow. I mean, but right? I think I've seen also on Twitter someone was someone was like, people still wash their hands after they use the bathroom at home, and I'm like, excuse me. What? Oh no, that was a talk show host online on The Real or something uh-huh. who said that she doesn't, when she's at home, she doesn't wash her hands after the bathroom. After the bathroom. Bathroom. Because it's like, so the issue is not the germs or the fact that you are literally touching urine and feces when you touch your um, genitals and such to wipe. Like just because it's yours, does it mean it's yeah, gonna- I mean, you're not worried about yourself, you're just worried about other people, which is like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard before in my life. Yeah. And of all the things that go, like, why is the toilet paper being hoarded? Why are people trying to make their own ethanol? So anyway, there's some interesting things that it's like, maybe people should be directed to counseling after this. Maybe people should, you know, keep staying alive, keep seeing a staying alive and watching Gloria Gaynor when you wash your hands, because yes. that's a good practice regardless. I mean, my preferred song when I'm washing my hands is the thong song by Cisco, but <laughs> that's awesome. Which part? The, the the chorus is exactly twenty seconds. Oh, yeah, got it. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah.
sing it again. She had dumpster. Baby Lima. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll sing it again. And then you sing it again. And then you just kind of have to hold the thong at the end for like two seconds. And then you're good. You're golden. No, I love this. Okay, this is it is fun. Like I actually don't sing a song. I, I just go lather, 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 lather. Like I do like a shimmy, a shake. Like I'm like warm my hands. And I do that a few times, and then I reverse directions. Yeah. And then I do like the crisscross with my hands. Uh, yeah. And then I like look at my nails, and then I do like the whole rollover thing. Mm-hmm. Like I'm rolling over the tops, and then I like shake it, shake it, shake it again. Oh. I don't know. I just. That's just, you know, I mean, I'm that's like a really good method. And I think I, but I, and I didn't really sing songs before. Like, I just knew you had to wash your hands for 20 seconds and have actually gotten some looks in the bathroom when I would be washing my hands for that long, which I think is hilarious. But yeah, people do. I'm like, I don't understand. It's the one thing I think I've, I've just done. Like, yeah, I've just washed my hands. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, singing the song has definitely made it more fun. Um, and has been made it more convenient now that I have a kid who calls my attention for everything because like I, I definitely probably have not been washing my hands for 20 seconds probably because the baby's like mom like, oh my god what and so you kind of sit back and I'm like nope I'm not done singing my song you have to wait <laughs> oh my god yeah I, I can't imagine because yeah, I just think about how babies, like, they're just bragging all the time because they can't actually put their foot in their mouth. Oh, they're so dirty. We, I have been so sick this winter because, well, when we moved from the West Coast to the East Coast, so we're in, like, a whole new, like, germ atmosphere. So mm-hmm. He just brings all the stuff home. And, like, they have no, like, filter of, like, social distancing, so he squeezes, like, in my eyeballs. And I'm just like, this is great. Or he'll just, like, drool all over me. And I'm just like, okay, guess, guess I'm just going to get sick today. It's like, do you not, do you not, do you not feel that? What's happening? What's happening? Oh, children. So it's a, it's a blessing that they are not affected by this very much because that would be. Yes. Honestly, I think that's why things didn't move faster. If the, mm-hmm. if the babies were being affected, like we tried to use reason with people and it didn't work. Anyway, I hope it was informative. I hope it was comical. And uh, if you want to hear more from uh dr taylor she is available on her platforms and actually why don't you just tell us if you want to find out more about what your work is or what you do where can we find you yes you can find me mostly on twitter so my handle is at k-y-t underscore that's me so t-h-a-t-s-m-e um and yeah i'm there most of the time that's probably the place to reach me as i said i don't really do facebook if i don't have to um and i don't really take pictures so instagram while i'm there i don't use it very often (laughs) that's awesome yeah all right well we'll catch you guys at the next pandemic (laughs) bye